Welcome, dear listeners. This is Kathleen Langone, and you're listening to the People Hidden in History podcast series. This is episode one, and I'll be telling you about Amalia Kusner, the darling miniature portrait artist of the Gilded Age. She is of special interest to me, being a distant relative. But before we start, if you'd like some background and inspiration for this series, please do listen to episode zero. Also, the social media is as follows. A Twitter account, which is at sign P-H-I-H-P-O-D, or the first letters of People Hidden in History, and then P-O-D for podcast. In addition, I'll be posting some images on Instagram with the same account name, P-H-I-H-P-O-D. And I'm planning a website for the future that will be announced on the Twitter feed, and the site URL will be peoplehiddeninhistory.com. Now, let's learn about the incredible life of Amalia Kusner. This amazing woman was a miniature portrait artist and the darling of the Gilded Age, the age when the American industrialists and their families were effectively the royalty of America. The dates would have been around the 1870s up to 1914, just before World War I. Amalia Kusner painted many of those families, and as part of their extended social circles, was introduced to the crowned heads of Europe. She would go on to paint Edward VII of England and the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia, Nicholas II and Alexandra. You will hear that in addition to her extraordinary artistic skills, she knew how to promote herself and altered the truth a bit to encourage business. My association with Amalia is that I am very distantly related through her mother's family, the Weinharts of Indiana. My family actually had a few of her miniatures that were displayed in my grandmother's gorgeous gold curio cabinet, along with many other treasures and a few family oddities. I grew up hearing just the highlights of her life and her association with royalty. I felt she was the perfect starting point for this podcast series. What were the beginnings of her incredible life? Amalia was born in Greencastle, Indiana in March of 1863, which of course was in the middle of the Civil War. That very same year, a few months later, Confederate soldiers, as part of Morgan's raid, came into southeastern Indiana. This event certainly would have been known to the family when Amalia was a baby. Her father, Lorenz Kusner, was a German immigrant who arrived here in 1852. Her mother, Emily Weinhardt, also a German immigrant, who arrived just prior to 1850. Now, Amalia was the youngest of three with her sister Louise, born in 1859, and her brother Albert, born in 1861. In the year following her birth, her family then moved to Terre Haute, Indiana, which is just a stone's throw from the Illinois border. Now, if you've never heard of her hometown, Terre Haute, Indiana, a number of famous people came from there. It was the hometown of the author Theodore Dreiser, who wrote the novel Sister Carrie, also another author, Philip Jose Farmer, who was a famous science fiction writer, 
and Benjamin Sherman Crothers, otherwise known as Scatman Crothers, the famed actor and musician. Some of you may remember him from the movie The Shining. Lorenz Kusner had a strong musical background and opened a music store called the Palace of Music, which did musical instrument repairs, and he also did some composing himself. Amalia's childhood was in a middle-class but not necessarily highly privileged family. The original building of her father's store burned down in 1867, and another building was purchased in Terre Haute with the financial help of his wife's parents, John and Babetta Weinhardt. The family moved and lived in an apartment above the store. The three children must have heard music of some sort almost every day of their lives. And this was an influence for Amalia's brother, Albert, who later became a successful music composer, who we'll mention towards the end of this podcast. Getting back to Amalia's life, the story goes that her father gave her a miniature portrait on ivory when she was just 12 years old, around 1875, and this inspired her to do her own miniatures. Her brother aided in that endeavor by providing tossed-aside ivory piano keys from her father's repair shop. Prior to graduating from Terre Haute High School in 1881, she was fortunate to have studied with Sister Maurice Schnell at the St. Mary of the Woods Academy, located near Terre Haute. This was probably her first formal art education. I've seen some of the sisters' artwork from 1878, a pastoral pencil sketch of a paddle boat on the Wabash River, which flows through Terre Haute. After high school, she attended a collegiate boarding school in New York to enhance her foreign language skills, including French. Returning to Terre Haute in 1885, she then studied under Helen Minshall, an artist in her own right. Helen Minshall was one of the leaders of the local decorative arts society in the 1880s, which Amalia also became a member of at this time. Her artistic endeavors became more professional, and she did studies of prestigious local families. She started to build a substantial reputation in the general area and was receiving frequent commissions, which included commissions out of state from Chicago since her brother took up residence there. In the early 1890s, her life had a single pivotal event. When a school friend of hers, Alice Fisher, encouraged her to go to New York City in 1892, Alice Fisher, another Terre Haute native, was famous in her own right, having debuted on Broadway in 1888 and enjoyed a long acting career into the 1900s. One of the key early introductions into New York society, aided by Alice Fisher, was to Mrs. Theodore A. Havemeyer, part of an elite group called the 400. Those on this list were the premier families and most wealthy of the Gilded Age in New York, a list maintained initially by Mrs. Caroline Orlina Astor, and this grand dame commissioned Amalia for numerous Astor family members, including her husband, William Astor Jr., and her daughter, Caroline. A historical side fact, one of her children, John Jacob Astor IV, died on the Titanic in 1912. 
Those on this exclusive list, as quoted in a publication of the day, were the only fashionable people of New York and would be quite comfortable in a ballroom setting. Amalia's earlier years in New York brought her significant financial success, and she had a studio at the Windsor Hotel where the elite would come for their sittings. I also found one reference in her early days in New York City that for a short while she was a staff artist at Tiffany's, the famed glasswork studio of Lewis Comfort Tiffany. I am still researching to find out more information on what she did at the Tiffany's studios. Mrs. Havemeyer continued to be instrumental in promoting Amalia and helped getting her works displayed in November of 1894 in association with the National Academy of Design. This was for a charity benefiting an orthopedic hospital in New York City, and the theme of this showing was portraits of women, which of course included Mrs. Havemeyer's miniatures and other notable women of society. There were hundreds of lent portraits by some of the best artists of the time, such as William Merritt Chase. This, again, was another example of how well she was shown to the New York's elite of the time, and there is no doubt that she knew the marketing importance of this event. In part, through the connections of Mrs. Havemeyer and others, she caught the attention of the famous Minnie Paget, famous since she was one of the most well-known dollar heiresses. These American women sought to marry well-positioned and, in some cases, men of British royalty to improve their social status. The men, in turn, welcomed the influx of American dollars to an ailing British economy, in part due to failing returns from their agricultural endeavors, a threat caused by increased grain production from the United States. In 1872, Minnie, then known as Mary Stevens, received her sizable inheritance upon her father's death, Perrin Stevens, and went to England, most likely in search of a husband. She married Captain Arthur Paget in 1878, who was a Marquess, and she became Lady Paget. She also had close associations with the British royalty, the Prince of Wales, later, of course, to become Edward VII upon the death of Queen Victoria in 1901. A well-known fictional dollar heiress was Cora Crawley from the series Downton Abbey, and she became Countess of Grantham, and her dowry did go to Downton. Another pivotal event occurred in 1895, though somewhat accidental. It helped Amalia's career in mystique. In February of that year, the magazine Harper's Bazaar did an extensive profile, including photos of her studio. They labeled her as an ingenue of only 22 years old, where in reality she was around 32 years old. She never corrected this error, and it did indeed add to her mystique. In fact, I found her passport applications through the years, and she falsifies her birth year at 1875. Amalia played the part of the young ingenue, and it indeed was a clever marketing approach. In the photos of Amalia, her beauty is clearly evident, with large expressive brown eyes and a lovely complexion and a dainty yet feminine figure. 
None of her photographs are prim and proper, with her hands at her side or folded in her lap, with high-necked Victorian clothing. One of her most famous photographs shows her looking slightly to the side with a bit of a Mona Lisa smile, her neckline defined by wraps of loose white fabric with her left arm resting on her hip is just covered by a strip of lace. She was clearly attired to provide an evocative portrait, and most of the women in her portraits were similarly dressed with often pale, sheer fabric wrapped around their shoulders. One thing I must note is often her subject's eyes were the focus of her paintings, often darkly and dramatically outlined. Their hair was loosely pinned on top or cascading as curls around their necks. Those of royalty would often be featured with chokers of pearls or sizable jewels. An article about her from 1910 cited, Amalia Kusner makes all her women goddesses and her men knights, and still portrays them with sufficient truth to make them recognizable. Which is a great description, since all of her subjects are certainly recognizable, but there's an otherworldliness about them, making you think of Greek gods or fairy queens, like Titania from Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. In 1896, Amalia, through her interactions and sponsorship from Minnie Paget, who at the time was prominent in London society, went to Europe to further expand her audience. During this time, she painted the Prince of Wales, who later became King Edward VII. He gave Amalia a gorgeous emerald and diamond necklace designed by René Lalique. It had a pave diamond triangle with a suspended pear-shaped emerald in the middle. There are other records of jewelry she received as gifts from royalty. The year, 1899, was to be a time of Amalia's two great adventures in very different parts of the world. Through her notoriety in the European royal circles, she was invited to Russia in March of that year to do a painting of Maria Pavlovna, who was the wife of Grand Duke Vladimir and the uncle of Tsar Nicholas II. Amalia wrote an impressively detailed account of this journey in Century Magazine in 1906. The article was entitled, The Human Side of the Tsar. In the opening paragraph of the article, Amalia expresses the need to tell America of her kind treatment by the Tsar, stating that the press has never printed a kind word about him. I'm not an expert on the reign of Nicholas II, and I'll let those more expert in that period of history form their own opinion. And of course, this is through the perspective of someone who lived in the upper echelons of society. But the article provided a likely realistic look of the private lives of this ultimately doomed family. Her writing was actually quite long at 10 pages, and I'll highlight just a few sections of interest. She was spending a good deal of time in London in early 1899, and I believe she traveled from there since it took two weeks to reach St. Petersburg from the time of the request. She describes the city as having a peculiar gloom with pervasive tones of gray and white. The Grand Duchess told her that this environment was in part the cause of the melancholy Russian temperament. The same day she arrived in St. Petersburg, she was immediately summoned to the Grand Duke's palace. 
she was received by the Grand Duchess, who surprisingly spoke perfect English. Amalia noted the great beauty of this woman and looked forward to starting the portrait the following morning. That day, due to an unexpected summons from the Tsarina herself, Amalia then went to the Duchess with great embarrassment to excuse herself and go to the Winter Palace. Her next descriptions I found especially interesting. On the carriage ride over to the palace, she recorded a heavy police presence. Amalia had previously heard tales of strangers being closely watched in Russia. Well, that pattern certainly has not changed with time. Furthermore, after arriving at the palace, she asked the lady-in-waiting who had received her why the local police had actually saluted her, and the lady-in-waiting said, since she was a guest of the Tsar and Tsarina, all of her movements, including arrival and departure times, were already known by the police, and if any deviation to that schedule occurred, it would be immediately looked into. In fact, later in her visit, one of the police chiefs could recount many of her recent activities, including going into a shop to buy a hat, so she was clearly under a constant surveillance. When Amalia was finally brought to the Tsarina, she was greeted in the same welcoming manner that the Grand Duchess had shown. Alexandra was attired in a simple tea dress with just a few jewelry accents, pearl earrings and a large star ruby ring being her favorite jewel. Before meeting the Tsarina, Amalia had seen very few pictures of her, stating that of all the crowned heads of the time, they were the fewest of this monarch. Her physical appearance was that that she was very tall and slender, but with lovely facial features and long brown golden hair and gray-blue eyes. Yet there was a wistful and sweet sadness to her demeanor, and her eyes were often cast down. Amalia later noted that a subtle regalness in her personality became more evident as her portrait progressed. The portrait was to be done in her boudoir, which was described as an exquisitely feminine room with the color of mauve everywhere. To include even mauve orchids in the many vases in the room, at the time, the imperial family had two daughters, Olga, closer to four years old, and Tatiana, almost two years old. The third daughter, Maria, would not have been born until June of that year, so the Tsarina was at least five months pregnant. Maybe something of the style of her clothing and her height hid the pregnancy, since it was not mentioned by Amalia. The infamous Anastasia was not born until 1901, and their only son, Alexei, was not born until 1904. Amalia's introduction to the Tsar was unexpected, and he entered the room during one of the sittings. Coming in from behind her, she first heard the click of spurs on the floor, and then saw the Tsarina look up and say, The Emperor is coming. Amalia stood up, and the Tsar offered his hand, as simply and unceremoniously as all the other royalty had. She was surprised as his physical appearance was so young and somewhat slight. He also spoke in English and learned that within the royal family itself, English was the spoken language. 
Again, she recorded in her writing the sense of kindness in his manner and features, and this passage was especially prophetic, which I'll read word for word. He appeared fully aware of the weight of this destiny, and to be bearing the awful burden with cheerful serenity, always looking at his great danger without one waver of fear. During her portrait sessions with him, they had lengthy and engaging discussions, including American politics and the involvement at the time in the Spanish-American War by the United States, and also recorded was the American newspapers and writings were often delivered to the Tsar. Her most impressive memory of the royal couple was how patiently they sat for the portraits and usually by themselves without any other royal courtiers attending them. There's an intriguing ending to the Tsar's portrait. Evidently, the uniform won by the Tsar, being very detailed, was delivered itself to Amalia's hotel in St. Petersburg so she could paint it quite exactly and not have the emperor sit while she recorded its detail. It initially was delivered partially wrapped in a large cloth napkin, including an embroidery of the royal seal. A royal valet came to pick it up, and somehow this napkin was missing. A huge uproar occurred at the hotel, and eventually the napkin appeared again and no indication of who or how it left her room. If you're interested in reading the full article at this time, it's accessible through Google Books. And now the story of her second adventure in 1899. Amalia was known to be determined to paint Cecil Rhodes, the famed British businessman and mining magnate of South Africa, most well known for his part in managing the diamond mining company De Beers Consolidated. It is likely that she went all the way to South Africa without invitation to see Rhodes. Interestingly, her journey to Kimberley, South Africa was at the start of the Boer War, Boer being spelled B-O-E-R. A brief explanation on this war. The Boers were the original Dutch settlers of Southern Africa. Britain kept exerting control through basically land grabs during the middle 1800s and escalating around 1867 when significant deposits of gold and diamonds were found in the region. A full-blown conflict started in October of 1899 and Amalia literally arrived at the same time and was witness to this war. There was active fighting around Rhodes Compound. Amalia is noted as being trapped there. A newspaper from November of 1899 has the following headline. Two distinguished New York young women are cooped in Kimberley. The other woman was Nancy Houston Banks, a celebrated novelist and magazine writer. She was covering the worsening conditions in that area, including food shortages, and she was on assignment from Vanity Fair of London. She and Amalia were described as experiencing the odd fortunes of war with the following quote, Two favorites of New York society, accustomed to the most agreeable luxuries of life. The article goes on to say that Amalia and Miss Banks were already devoted friends. This indeed was the case, and Miss Banks had done an article on Amalia a few years previously. Evidently, they met up in Cape Town. 
having arrived within two days of each other. As their train traveled northeast and inland to Kimberley, it was actually stopped by the Boers, but allowed to continue since the passengers on the train were seen as non-combatants. As they arrived in Kimberley and with the background of the siege in that area, Rhodes reluctantly took them in. He did, however, promise Amalia daily morning sittings. As the days proceeded, Kimberley was being actively attacked by the Boers, and artillery and bombs exploded around them. Amalia and Miss Banks are recorded as picking up shell fragments in the streets in between the onslaughts. Rhodes is depicted as an inspiration to the British garrisons, being very engaging on his visits to entrenchments and commanding the forces to fight back, and right by his side were Amalia and Miss Banks. For his own safety, Rhodes left the compound before the portrait was finished, and Amalia finished his likeness from memory. In addition to recording Amalia's perilous South African adventure, the article provided the most detail on the earnings her portraits brought in at that time. Her work totaled to an amount of $50,000 a year. This is a phenomenal amount for anyone's salary at the turn of the century, let alone a woman artist. I'd like to talk now on Amalia's personal life and her family. Prior to Amalia's incredible adventures in 1899, she had started a relationship with Charles Dupont Coderre, meeting him possibly as early as 1896 in Europe. We know that Amalia's social contacts in New York and Europe in the 1890s were with the premier stars of the Gilded Age, and of course that meant the very wealthy, and the Coderre family was no exception. There's very little information on anyone else Amalia might have been involved with, but there is evidence that Nikola Tesla, the famous inventor, was interested in her and wanted to give her a tour of his amazing laboratories in 1898. Tesla also had a connection with the Astor family. John Jacob Astor IV became a major investor in Tesla's inventions a year later. Charles Dupont Coderre was the son of Charles Coderre and had the nickname of Ponpon. I do love the very wealthy and their nicknames. His family, through his father and two uncles, ran a prestigious New York law firm, the Coderre Brothers, practicing in international law. There was Coderre's father, Charles Coderre Jr., and his two uncles, Frederick Coderre and Louis Coderre. This law firm, in some form, persisted under the name Coderre Brothers until 2006. One other historical connection to add is that the father of Charles Coderre, Charles Coderre Sr., was born in France and was actually part of an elite military guard with Napoleon I, termed the Guard of Honor, and immigrated to the U.S. since his life was at risk in France. At the time their relationship started, he was a practicing international lawyer and wealthy, I suspect, both from his career and, of course, his family. Though they met in 1896, they were apart for a few years. Shortly after the Spanish-American War broke out, Coderre went into the Navy in 1898 as an officer. As is often the case with men of wealthy families who serve in wars, they are often in safer positions and not sent into the heat of battle, which was the case for Coderre. 
He initially served in Washington, D.C., but later ended up in the Philippines in 1899 and managed a commissary. He returned to America late in 1899, coinciding with Amalia's return from South Africa. Amalia Kusner and Charles Dupont Coderre were married July 4, 1900, in the sacristy of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. What has always been a mystery is that the ceremony was private, only attended by the mothers of Amalia and Charles Coderre, with just a small dinner that night at the Hotel Savoy. Many newspapers across the country listed the event, and the New York Times labeled it as a hasty wedding that made quite a little stir. So why did two people, clearly prominent in New York society and with Amalia's international fame, have basically a secret ceremony? Amalia was older than her husband by almost 10 years, which would have raised some eyebrows, but that was a close-kept secret. Amalia did continue some work after her marriage, but her activities significantly dwindled until her last work around 1911. So what were the factors that had Amalia stop her incredible work? There, of course, might have been societal pressure that a married woman didn't have a career. Certainly, her husband had an established career and received also a large family inheritance in 1903. There also was the diminished interest in painted miniatures with photographic techniques improving all the time. Oddly, there were some lawsuits issued against Amalia in the early 1900s, one specifically around a commission issue. These would not have helped her image. As discussed earlier, she did provide the article about the Tsar to Century Magazine in 1906, which she was paid quite a good sum. Clearly, she didn't marry Coderre for his money. They never had any children and ended up settling in England, having bought a castle in 1914. After that time, very little is written about her, and she died in Switzerland in 1932 of a lung ailment. Amalia's beloved school, the St. Mary of the Woods Academy, where she clearly got great inspiration to help her talent through her years, did occasionally mention her in the years after she left Indiana as one of their most famous students, and she wrote the following to the school in 1916. When I next go to America, I shall visit the beloved school of my childhood. I shall not recognize it in its present grandeur, but the warm and tender hearts of the dear sisters will be unchanged. As mentioned earlier, Albert, Amalia's brother, became a music composer in the late 1800s, paralleling Amalia's rise to fame. His style of music was appropriate for the period, rich and romantic compositions. I love the titles of some of his pieces, The Evening Hour, Woodland Flowers, and Love's Mysteries. One of his most popular pieces was Moon Moths. In fact, he dedicated this piece to her. Putting into perspective Amalia's career against others in that time period, Wikipedia has the following. Amalia is listed with the first wave of feminism in the 19th century under the section of women artists, who were famous before 1900, along with other artists such as Mary Cassatt, 
Elizabeth Shippen Green, and Jesse Wilcox Smith. She certainly was someone who commanded the destiny of her life. Though she promoted the image of a delicate ingenue artist, she was anything but. She was quoted early in her arrival in New York City when asked about who her teachers were to have given her this skill with the question, what old masters did you study? Amalia simply replied, none who taught the old masters. This almost haughty reply clearly indicated her strong sense of self and illustrates the character of this self-made woman. There are still some mysteries about Amalia that I am researching further. There will be a second podcast with some live interviews and hopefully more details on her life, especially after her marriage to Coderre and her activities in the 1900s. We might even include some of her brother Albert's piano music. I am also quite fortunate to have one piece of Amalia's work. However, it's neither a miniature or a portrait, but a watercolor of laurel tree blossoms in a vase. Her signature is in the lower right corner, and not surprisingly, the letters of her name, the A and the K, are boldly written, certainly reflecting her true personality. If you'd like to see some of Amalia's artwork, you can find three of her miniatures in the Swope Art Museum of Terre Haute, Indiana. The Cincinnati Art Museum and the Worcester Art Museum in Massachusetts both have a single work of hers, but are not on display at this time. The Worcester Art Museum is redoing their miniature portraits exhibits and hopes to reopen possibly in early 2022 and should have her work on display at that time. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be posting some related images on the Instagram account, which is P-H-I-H-P-O-D. And I'm planning to publish the second podcast on Amalia in spring of 2021. And please do subscribe to the series on iTunes.